Good morning. So great to see you guys here today. I want you to know you should count it a blessing that I didn't sing or hum that little melody after it was over. You're, you're welcome. Uh, we started off on the right foot. Hey, my name is Rod Zwemke. I'm lead pastor here. and We're starting a new series called The Good Life because there's not a person in this room that says, I don't want the good life. We're all looking for the good life. But if we're honest, we're a little fuzzy on what the good life actually looks like. And if I did a survey and said, tell me what you think the good life is, we'd probably get 100 different answers in this room. And so today what we intend to do is to hone in on what the good life actually is. The reason we're fuzzy on that is because we get mixed signals. If we're a follower of Christ, there's a part of us that, that's hearing that the good life is living our life for God and for the things of God and that this life isn't the end, but there's another life coming and that we ought to live this life in light of the next life. And the good life, the good, and there's another uh, voice in our head. In fact, a lot of voices from our culture that say the good life is found in grabbing as much of the good stuff from this life as you can. As much pleasure, as much fun, as much fortune, as much whatever you're after, you grab it and squeeze it for all it's worth in the here and now. So my question is, which is it? Most of us would say, look, I'd like to have both. Can I, can I not have both, the good life that God has for me and the good life in the here and now? I can tell you, um, I try that all the time. You're probably in the same boat. Man, I'm thinking uh, there's decisions I made that the opportunity comes before me and, and this crazy thought runs through my head is, hey, you only live once, why not? Have you ever done anything smart after you thought you only live once? Ever, ever, ever. I've never, ever made a good decision. So then it comes a really stupid, short-sighted decision because you're thinking, man, I got to grab it right now. Can I tell you, there's a book of the Bible that has been written by a man named Paul under the inspiration of God. It's the book of Philippians. And for the next four weeks, we're going to be walking through this book together. And not only are we going to look at the teaching of what the good life is, we're actually also going to be looking at the example of Paul in his life. Because in the example of his life and in his teachings, as inspired by God himself, we're going to discover what the good life actually looks like. You ready to find out? You ready for the good life? Let's go. In fact, I'll encourage you over the next four weeks, read through the book of Philippians. Read through the book of Philippians in your time alone with God. All right, we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 1, and it says this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So the letter opens from Paul under inspiration by God, praising this church in Philippi for their faithfulness, not only in receiving the gospel, where, let's just explain that, where they actually came to faith in Christ, they crossed the line of faith where they did not once believe that Jesus was the Son of God and who died on the cross for their sins and then rose from the dead. But, but because of God's ministry through Paul, they did. They, came, they crossed that line and they played 
place their faith in Jesus as the leader and the forgiver of their lives. And they received the gospel, but they didn't stop there. They also became partners in the gospel, meaning they were so excited about what God had done for them personally in saving them in their sin and renewing their life that they wanted to share that and spread that to other people. Paul had met this group of people at Philippi on his second missionary journey. You can read about it in the, in the book of Acts, chapter 16. I encourage you to read that this week as well. And he, he went into this town, started telling people that Christ had risen from the dead. They placed their faith in him, and a church formed. He spent some time treat, teaching them the truths of Christianity, built up a few leaders, and then had to move on and start other churches, and this church kept going. Not only did it kept going, it thrived. This was a thriving church. And so he's writing this letter to them later, encouraging them to keep going, to keep pressing on, to keep growing in the things that they were already started in. And so in verses uh, 7 through 11, he names some things to keep growing in. He says, keep growing in grace, love, knowledge, blamelessness, and purity. Let me just stop right there. Does that sound like the good life to you? I mean, if you were a person that was growing in grace and knowledge and blamelessness and purity and, and love, wouldn't that be a great life? I think that's what the good life looks like, if you ask me. Would this world not be a better place if people were growing in greater measure in love and knowledge and purity and blamelessness and, and all those things? Wouldn't that be a better place for us to live right here? That's where the good life is. And so Paul is saying, keep pressing in on this good life that you've started in. Now I want you to think about it from Paul's perspective. Not only was he experiencing growing measures of love and purity and all these things, but he was actually also being a part of God using him for other people to discover those things and for them to have their life transformed by God and for them to start off on a new path, for churches to be formed and the kingdom of God and the family of God to be grown and grown and grown. Can I ask you, do you think Paul was experiencing the good life? No doubt about it. That sounds like a good life to me. In fact, in this two handfuls we talked about earlier with going after the good life of this, how the world defines it, and the good life that God defines it, you could certainly say as God defines it, Paul and the people in Philippi were certainly experiencing the good life. But I want you to understand something. Paul's life and this people's lives in Philippi, them experiencing the good life didn't come without a cost. In fact, it came with a great cost. See, Paul, in, in Acts 16, you can read about this, he met a prominent businesswoman named Lydia, started off on a great foot. Uh, she, she came to faith in Jesus. She was sort of, her house became the hub of ministry, and God was doing great things in Philippi. And then things started to unravel. Uh, Paul and Silas were going uh, on their way to the synagogue one day, and this, um, this young slave girl who was possessed by a demon was telling fortunes through the power of demonic forces and she was calling out to them, harassing them, and Paul finally got enough, and he cast the demon out of this little girl, which sounds amazing, and it was, but then also the flip side of that was is it started a riot because the owners of the slave didn't like that so much. They lost their income, beaten by rods by the Romans and thrown into jail. Now, let me ask you something. Paul still living the good life? Is that the good life? 
He's still, all this awesome God stuff still happening in his life and through his life and around his life and other people, and yet he finds himself beaten and in jail. And in this side of life, things are high on the high scale, and on this side of life, they're low. Is this your picture and my picture of what the good life looks like? Well, from there, it only gets worse. The jailer, they throw him in jail, and you and I would probably be sulking, crying, woe is me, where is God, what is happening? I thought I was on the right path. God, I'm doing what you told me to do, and all these horrible things are happening to me. Yet when we continue in the narrative, you know what they see? We see them doing, they are praying and singing to God in joy. And I'm dumbfounded. Maybe you are too. Do they have a screw loose? I mean, what is wrong with these guys? Why in the world are they singing and joyful in the midst of this horrible place in their life? For some reason, they still are living the good life. Well, God intervenes. He causes an earthquake, and it busts open the doors of the jail, and even the shackles on their feet are released, and they are free to go. And the jailer who was responsible for them knew that if they escaped, it would cost him his life, and so he's about to take his own life. And Paul says, whoa, 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 hang on. We haven't escaped. We're still here. Don't do anything rash. The jailer comes to Paul and says, What must I do to be saved? He recognized the hand of Almighty God, that the living God was moving in his midst, that these guys were real and they were legit, and whatever they've got, I want. Him and his whole household comes to faith in the living God. You know what that looks like to you and I? Really high, great God stuff and really low, terrible this world stuff. That's what was happening in the life of Paul and his companions. Here's my point. Here's my point. I think for many of us, our picture of what the good life is, is we want everything going great with God and we want everything going great in this world. But the example and the illustration we get from the life of Paul is that we can still experience the good life if we're pursuing the things of God. Even if this life is not going the way we intended, it is still the good life. That's still a good life. In fact, let me say it this way. The good life is found in giving up today's freedoms for tomorrow's fruitfulness. It's being willing to give up today's freedoms for tomorrow's fruitfulness. See, in my experience, you can't pursue both. In my experience, you can't give yourself fully to God and fully to this world. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You can't give your heart to Jesus and your heart to a bunch of other things. You can only have one master of your life. Because there will become a point where those two masters are in conflict with each other. And your resources will go to one or the other. There will be competing priorities. And you can only give yourself fully to one. 
And in my experience, the more I seek the good life in this life, the less I find myself pursuing the things of God. And it feels like a scale sometimes that when I pursue the things of God, this may go down, but it's satisfying. But when I pursue the things of this world, suddenly I find myself bankrupt in the things that ultimately matter. And I can't have them both. Because I believe half-hearted devotion is pointless. To go after both means we're dissatisfied with both of them. You know, a little bit of obedience to God is a whole lot of disobedience to God. A little bit of following his plan for your life means you're missing out on a lot of the good things he's got for you. And God in his wisdom has given us Paul as this example to say, listen, even if you find yourself in a situation in life where things may be going good spiritually but not so good the way you intended in this life, he says, take courage. You're in good company. You can still have the good life. This is good. This is still good. I believe the fruitful life, the God life, the good life God has for you, it's an illusion to have it without cost. It's an illusion. It always will cost us something. I want you to look, and really for the remainder of our time, I want you to look at what it's going to cost you to say, I'm going to follow the good life that God has for me, the life that I live this life in light of the next life, that I put God as the priority in my life, that it's going to cost you. And I want you to see what it's going to cost you, what it costs Paul, and what's going to cost me. But I want, to, I want you to know, before I get all the cost of following God, I want you to realize something. The cost of not following God, the cost of pursuing the good life in this life, the cost far outweighs the cost that we're going to talk about. But the cost, the eternal cost, if we pursue the good life today and in this life, we may not see the cost of them until it's too late. So number one. I want you to see in verse 13 where, where Paul was when he wrote this. He says, I am in chains for Christ. Oh, yeah, by the way, not only was it in prison before, when he's writing the letter to the church in Philippi, he's in a jail in Rome. And when I say in jail, he wasn't just in a prison cell laying on a bunk somewhere. He was literally tied to another human being through shackles. And if that Roman soldier wanted to move, guess what? Paul had to move. And if Paul wanted to go somewhere, he had to get permission from that guy to move. Paul had zero rights. Do you know what I want to tell you this morning? If you're going to follow the good life of Christ, it's going to cost you your rights. It's going to cost you your rights. Some things you think you deserve or need or God owes you, or it's going to cost you those things. Follow you, uh, uh, if I see this happen, no. God, I follow you, and whatever you cho choose to do in this life is okay with me. I've used this illustration before, but it's very relevant for my life. Uh, there was a time when I was a young man, my wife and I were married, and we were dinkwads. You know what a dinkwad is? Dual income, no kids with a dog. That was our life for six years, and we were great at it, okay? We were dinkwads. And in my dream as a dinkwad is I'm going to own a Corvette one day. And I'm not going to be this old guy, like 80-year-old guy in a Corvette. I'm going to be a young guy in a Corvette, right? I'm going to be that guy, okay? And I had my sights set on that, and you're laughing at me. But it was true. That was part of my dream. I was like, this is going to be awesome. And then God called me to ministry, <laughs> And I said, bye-bye, Corvette. I said, but God, I'll make, an, uh, make a compromise with you. How about a Camaro? 
was a poor man's Corvette. And so for three years, I got to drive a, Cor a Camaro, and I loved it. But then we started having children, and if you've ever tried to put a car seat in the back of a Camaro, you realize that's a bad idea. And so bye-bye Camaro, all right? And, it, and you know, <laughs> minivan, here we come. But you know what? That seemed like a sacrifice at the time. But raising my kids, it, it isn't a sacrifice. I don't miss that Camaro. You kidding me? The joy that they've brought to my life doesn't compare at all to what a car could bring me and what I thought was such a huge sacrifice ultimately not being a sacrifice at all. Can I tell you the same thing when it comes to the things of God? When we say, man, I'm going to have to give up some things in order to pursue God more fully in my life, it seems like there's a cost, but when we do it and we embrace it, we realize, man, I'm not missing out on anything. I'm not missing a thing. And you realize that the, whatever small sacrifices we make in pursuing the good life of God, it pales in comparison to the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on a cross when he willingly laid down his life and shed his blood that you and I might be accepted by God Almighty. And when our little teeny tiny comparison of our sacrifice compares to his sacrifice, we go, God, what, why do I even bring it up? Is the this world pursuit that you're hanging on to? Is there a this world pursuit or this world right that you're like, God, I need this, I gotta have this? God may be telling you this morning, in fact, I guarantee He is saying, Why don't you just try letting that go and pursue me with all your heart? Because you can't serve two masters. Can I tell you one thing? If you'll let go and then pursue the good life that God has for you, he may end up still giving you that good thing you want in your life. But if he does, listen, it won't be an idol anymore. And if he doesn't give you what you want or what you thought you wanted, it's because he had something better in mind for you. Number one, it will cost you your rights. Number two, we're going to look at back at verse one for this one. And he said this, Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus. Now, let me ask you, isn't that a strange introduction? Do you ever just walk up to somebody, hey, Rod Zwemke, servant of Jesus, how you doing? They're like, okay, weirdo, back up. Social distancing, all that stuff, okay, stay away. None of us embrace that title as that's like who I am. But I want you to understand, for Paul to make that statement, it's really pretty profound because Paul had it all. Paul was a lawyer. He was a Pharisee, and a Pharisee was a very respected lawyer in his day. In my notes, I have insert lawyer joke here. Uh, you know, you can, you can think of all the, the funny things that we talk about with lawyers, but in that day, there weren't any of those jokes, or at least I don't know them. And Paul wasn't like a, a Saul Goodman from Better Call Saul kind of lawyer. He was a, like, legit Perry Mason kind of lawyer, like respected. All the kids were like, who Perry Mason? I don't know who you're talking about respected. And on top of that, being a Pharisee was like you were a lawyer plus a clergy and you were like double respected and you got places of honor at banquets and everyone looked up to you and people would, would, would say something as you passed by. And that's who Paul was before he met Christ. But when you choose the good life of following God, it will change your identity. It'll change your identity. Paul traded all this respect and prestige in for saying, I am a servant of God. You and I won't have the need to be important. 
we'll find our importance in Christ. We'll know that we're important not because of what other people think of us. We'll know that we're important not because of how we perceive ourselves, but we'll be important because the God of the universe says you have value and I think you're important. In fact, you are important enough for my son to go to a cross and bleed and die for you. That's how important you are. That's who you are. Traded it all in. And when you and I do the same thing, when you and I embrace this idea of being a servant and not trying to be important, oh my goodness, let me tell you something. Jesus had a lot to say about that. He said instead of trying to be important and being, being respected in this life, he said anyone who wants to follow me must become a slave to all. If anyone wants to be important in my eyes, then if they're going to pursue the good life for me, then they need to be like this little child and humble themselves. If anyone's going to become like me and follow me, then they need to be less and I need to become greater. And over and over and over again in the scriptures, God says, listen, if you want to find the good life now, then embrace your identity as servant and slave to all. There's a phrase God keeps reminding me in my time alone with him. He says, I'm calling you to be a joyful slave. Rod, I want you to be a joyful slave. You say, how in the world can you be a joyful slave? I'll tell you how. When you have a benevolent and kind owner. When you have a benevolent and kind master. And God, our Father, is benevolent and kind and good. And we offer ourselves in servitude to him. We don't find ourselves restricted. We find ourselves freed because now we are free from slavery to ourself and free to live for the living God in service to other people. And we can gladly come up and say, listen, I want to live as a servant and a slave. And I find my focus in giving myself away in the service of God to other people. And I've never ever been happier. God says, this is where it's at, baby. High in the God scale, low on the servant scale. He says, embrace that. If you want the good life, embrace it. Can I tell you, I believe every person in the kingdom of God, everyone that calls Jesus Lord of their life, ought to have some place where they're serving other believers. Man, it's so, so good for us. Can I tell you, church, every church needs people to serve, but you and I need to be servants more than the church needs you to be a servant. We need it for this place right here, that we'd get this picture right. And we'd say, man, I humble myself in service to others. And I discover, man, that is such a beautiful place to be. Third piece to this equation, if we're going to be finding the good life, is number three, that the good life will challenge your self-reliance. It'll challenge your self-reliance. So I read it in the first few verses there. He talked about praying. I'm praying for you. Every time I pray for you, I do it with joy. And over and over again in this first chapter, Paul keeps referencing prayer. In fact, I'm going to give you another example in verse 9 and 10. It says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Man, he's praying that this church would continue to thrive, that these people would continue to embrace all that God has for them. 
But, but Paul, in all of his, his wisdom and all of his servitude, he knows he is completely incapable of changing one human heart. He's completely incapable of any single person crossing the line of the faith, that he is of no service to God on his own, that he is totally and completely reliant on God himself. And he demonstrates it through prayer. That's how, we just, that's how we wreck this idea that we are self-sufficient is through prayer. This is how we get over the fact that we think that we're in charge and that we're in control and we can make things happen as we go and we recognize that there is a God who makes things happen. There's a God who is in control and it isn't us, but there's one who's always listening and ready to speak and listen into our lives through prayer. And when you experience peace, when life seems out of control and when things are broken in your life, you feel powerless through prayer. You recognize that even though those things are true, there's a God who's in control and there's a God who can fix what's wrong and there's a God who has all power you need. So when we talk about giving up our rights, we lose something. There's no, there's no denying that. And when we talk about changing our identity, that will cost us something. But this idea of self-reliance, I don't think it costs us anything, to be honest with you. All it does is exposes the illusion that you and I are in control. That's all it does. The illusion that you and I can dictate what's going to happen in the life around us, the situations that we can put ourselves in, the good things that we want from this life. Listen, I got news for you. We're not in control of those things, but there's a God who is. There's a God who reigns upon his throne, and he sits among the kings of the world, and his sovereign plan happens exactly the way he intends it to happen. And so we pray. Let me ask you something. Do you believe God is interested in the details of your life? Do you pray about the details of your life? Is God concerned about your kids and your finances and your marriage and your attitude and your work situation? If you believe God cares about those things, you'll pray about those things. Can I tell you emphatically that there is a God who cares about the details of your life and my life, and he loves it when you bring those details to him and you lift them up in prayer and say, God, I don't have the solution, but you do. And God, I don't have the patience to endure it, but you do. And God, I don't have the self-control in this moment, but you do. And God meets you and you recognize that you are not self-sufficient, but you are totally reliant on a benevolent owner and master. Yeah. And I'll just add this to the part in prayer. Paul was faithful to pray for others. Can I just challenge you to be a person of praise for others? If God's interested in the details of your life, guess what? He's interested in the details of the people sitting next to you and the people sitting around you and the people at work and the people at school and that you and I are called to be intercessors for the people that may not even be praying for God to move in their life, but you might be in their life in order to pray for them. Can I challenge you to have a list? I use a, a, an app for this, but you might want to write them down or put them in your phone. You should have a list of people that need Jesus and you're praying that they'll come to know Christ. You need to have a people that you're praying for that are down or discouraged and you ask God to lift them up. You might need to have a list of people that are struggling financially or with illness and you're praying that God would meet them in that need and be glorified in their life through it. Can I challenge you to have a list like that and pray for the people around you because God cares about the details of their life. And I got one more challenge for you. 
I don't know what wild hair got into me, but about six months ago, I decided I was going to show up right here at 5 a.m. Every, every Thursday morning and pray from 5 to 9. And I'm inviting you to be a part of that. I'm inviting you to drop in for five minutes or 15 minutes or an hour or however long you want to, but that we would be a people of prayer. Because I don't believe there's any other solution for the things that ail our world than the hand of the sovereign God moving and awakening people to salvation through Jesus Christ and for God himself reviving the church that we might live for him and for God to bring about his kingdom and his purposes and his glory that prayer moves the mighty hand of God. Will you come and pray that God would do that together? I'll tell you, prayer wrecks our self-reliance and puts all of our confidence in exactly the place it's supposed to be, in the hands of a sovereign, mighty, powerful, loving God. Last one, number four, the good life will change your perspective. Look what Paul says here, starting in verse 12. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard where he was in in prison and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Do you know what he's saying here? He's writing to comfort and console the people in Philippi that were so worried about poor Paul who's in prison and he's having this terrible this world experience and they're saying, woe is me. And he's saying, no, no, I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I want you to be excited with me because even though things are low on this side, man, God's rocking it on this side. And the good life that God has promised is being fulfilled because people in the Roman government are being exposed to the truth of God and people that are in power are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And even on top of that, people who are believers in Christ are being emboldened and they've seen me get locked up because of my faith. They're going, well, if Paul can do it, I can do it too. And they're bolder about sharing with other people that Jesus is the solution for all that ails us. He said, you're seeing it as a negative You need to see it as a positive. In this world, it looks like a tragedy, but can I tell you, it doesn't ultimately matter. I'm not even focused on the pain in this life. I'm praising God for the glory that's coming. Because Paul knew something that's really profound to me. He knows that winning in the things that don't matter doesn't satisfy like sacrificing for the things that do matter. Let me say that again. Paul knew that winning at the things that don't matter just doesn't satisfy like sacrificing for the things that do matter. Man, I'm challenged by that own statement I just made. I mean, I hear that and I go, that's difficult to grab onto. That's a hard reality to grasp and say, yeah, I'm going to choose to believe that. And believe me, it is a choice. And if you and I are going to choose with that, to think and act with that kind of other world mentality, then you and I have to decide that it's worth it to give up things in this life in order to be glorified, Christ be glorified in our lives and in the next life. Are you willing to give up your freedoms, rights, identity, self-sufficiency today to have something better, the joy of fruitfulness tomorrow? I know too many believers that are Christ followers and they're not living in joy. And I can tell you there's only one reason for it is they're still trying to find the good life in this world. And they've not embraced that it may not come in this world, that it may come in the next 
And I can tell you the believers that have grabbed onto it, you know what their life looks like? And they amaze me with their faith every single day because they dream about the kingdom of God and they long to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And they sacrifice for the things and the cause of God. And they are steadfast in prayer. And they're willing to give up their rights in order to maintain unity within the body of Christ and say, listen, if that makes you feel more comfortable here, then I'll let go of what I think is right in order for you to be welcomed among us. So if you ask Paul that question, is it worth it? Is it worth it to just go ahead and embrace that my life might look like this? Is it worth it to embrace the good life of God and maybe have to give up the good life here? You know what his answer would be? Absolutely. 100%. In fact, I'm going to point you to one more passage from 2 Corinthians, and Paul's describing his life. It's powerful. He says, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, Genuine, yet regarded as imposters. Known, yet regarded as unknown. Dying, and yet we live on. Beaten, and yet not killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, and yet possessing everything. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I don't care if my life in this life is in the bottom dregs. I am living the good life because I'm living it for the glory of God. And I've grabbed a hold of the good life of the things that really matter. And I'm not letting go. And I can tell you this, these things don't even matter. And trying to find significance and satisfaction in this life, it's always fleeting and it'll never satisfy. Because I don't know about you, but when you find a high in this life, then you want to replicate that high. And you need another high and you need a higher high. And trying to find the good life in this life means you're adverse to pain and discomfort and issues and problems and you hide from them and you run from them and you do everything to avoid them and you think, man, life's terrible when something bad happens and God says, listen, that's exactly where I might want to give you something great. Can I tell you, if there wasn't another life coming, everything I just said was hogwash. If, if this is it, our motto ought to be go out there and get as much fun out of today and tomorrow and the next day and run as hard as you can, as fast as you can. Soak it all up because tomorrow you die. But I can tell you one thing. There is another life coming. There are more important things than what happens in this life. And we are to live our life in light of eternity. Paul thought that way, but can I tell you something? He didn't always think that way. He had an amazing, life-changing encounter with the living God. He was going to persecute and hurt Christians because he was advancing among his peers and people were looking up to him and look at Paul and he's doing all these great things and he was living for his reputation and then he met Christ, aim again, and his life went from this to this. So let me just ask you, What's important to you today? What are you living for today? We have the same opportunity that Paul had today. 
We get to choose what life we want to live for. We get to choose what we think the good life is all about. For Paul, that was an easy, easy decision. God had given him a second chance, and he wasn't about to blow it. And he lived his life, not perfectly, but intentionally and powerfully for the things of God. He'd tell you that's the good life. Can I tell you, if you've been hanging on to try to find the good life in this life, the only thing you have to give up is disappointment after disappointment of empty promise that this world never delivers on. You get to exchange that for the goodness of God. Life with God, relationship with him, a new life, a new purpose, joy in the midst of sorrow, peace in the midst of turbulent times. That's what he offers. If you'll let go and turn your life over to him. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much that you are a kind, kind master. That when we offer ourselves as servants to you, we don't lose something, we gain everything. Paul said he had nothing and yet he gained everything. And that doesn't make sense until Jesus becomes a reality in our life. And we cross that line of faith and God steps in and renews our heart. You can't know that until you experience it, but I, I, knew, I know what you do know and what you have experienced, that the promises of this life have left you empty. Maybe just a little, the promises of this life keep you longing for more, and you think, maybe just a little more of this or a little more of that, and then I'll finally be happy, then I'll finally have the good life. No, you won't. God says there's only one place, and it's found in me man, I can give you a great life. A life abounding with love and knowledge and blamelessness and purity. I can, I can bring you into relationship with me. I'm willing to forgive your sins through the death, burial, and resurrection of my son, Jesus. And right now, God may be asking you, come home. It's time to quit pursuing this life and pursue me. The truth is God has been pursuing you since you were born. And he's brought you here today for a decision. If you're ready to make that decision and and invite Christ into your life for, for God's forgiveness, let me tell you something. There's nothing in your past that God can't forgive and there's nothing you've done that will keep you from the love of God. His love is too great. His forgiveness is too complete. And you can come when you're brokenness and right where you are and say, God, tell him this right now, God, I need you. God, I need your forgiveness. Would you forgive me? I admit that I've blown it before you. And I recognize it costs a lot. And I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. He paid for my sin. He rose from the dead to give me life. And so today I'm asking God for you to come into my life to forgive me and to lead me. Man, if that was your prayer, God unleashed heaven into your heart today. 
If you meant that sincerely, Jesus forgave you of your sins, and now you've got a new life in him. Lord, I want to pray for every single one of your people in this room. Every single day we have the choice. Am I living for the good life today and what this world offers? Or am I living for the good life in you? God, may we be people that choose your life, that choose the good life found in you. God, take center stage of our life. Help us to let go anything that would keep us from being fruitful for you. And may we experience a growing abundance of love, purity, and blamelessness in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.